Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Political Division Reenvisioned with your host, Nick Liberty. First off, let me start off by saying my apologies. It's been a while since I uploaded an episode. Uh, that's not for lack of trying. If anybody's not familiar, if this is maybe your first time tuning in or if you've only listened once or twice, I work in political research, which means that with the November 8th election coming up, I've been extremely busy with work following congressmen and congresswomen and senators and doing political research. So it's been very hectic and it probably will be for the next few weeks. But after November 8th, I should be able to resume a semi-regular upload schedule like I was when I started. Um, but that being said, I really do appreciate everybody that's listening in. Uh, shout out to my buddy Josh, who's given me a lot of great feedback on the show, and my friends Matt and Jake out in Nebraska. You guys are all the best. You're my number one fans and followers, and I appreciate you guys. Um, and then to everybody who I don't know your name, if you want a shout out on the show, send me a message at politicaldivisionreenvisioned at gmail.com. Again, that's the name of the podcast, at gmail.com, all one word. Um, and I'd be happy to give you guys a shout out or have you get involved with the show or, you know, whatever people be interested in answering questions, uh, getting back feedback, whatever you guys want to use that for that email accounts open and ready to receive. <laughs> um, yeah. So today's episode is going to be called America's looking green. What about the essential oils? Uh, it's a little play on words there. I'm sure we'll be able to figure that out. But it was inspired by a debate I went to for a congressional district in Connecticut. I believe it was Connecticut 2. Um, and that was featuring uh, Joe Courtney and Mike France. And they had a really interesting back and forth on green energy. And it inspired me to want to do an episode on it, um, on the importance of embracing green energy, but also on the, the use of oil currently and how we get from point A to point B without getting lost in the weeds. So without further ado, I'm going to get into the brunt of the episode in just a second here. Thanks again for everybody tuning in. First off, I just want to address, um, again, if you haven't listened to previous episodes, I'm a right-leaning libertarian, so I'll be forward with my bias on this. But I want to address this idea that Republicans or conservatives or people that lean to the right are inherently against green energy. I don't think that's true. I don't think there's a single person out there who wouldn't prefer, if all else is the same, to have cleaner energy that doesn't have negative impacts on their communities, where they live, um, their their earth, their world. Um, the question with Republicans is how do we get there in a sensible way and how do we do so without causing undue disruption? So there's this like fallacy that like Republicans hate the environment and they're anti-green energy. I just there, there's no real logical way to explain that. I mean, you could you could claim greed, but they still have to live in their communities. They still have to drink their water. They don't want the world to be disgusting and awful. They're still going to have children. They're still going to have people. They want to you know continue their political dynasties, uh, and they can't do that if they destroy everything and make it awful. So it's one of those things where it's like, yes, if we can do it in a way that makes sense, yes, solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, all of these things are awesome, but we also need to come to terms with the fact that we've been relying on gas and oil for the last 100 plus years. I mean, we really for 200 years, if you count like whale oil and things like that, but that's a little bit different than like fossil fuels, what we're talking about. But either way, we have, you know, decades and centuries of reliance on coal and oil and fire and these things that are somewhat or highly negatively impacting the environment, which is absolutely true. There is a lot of cases of actual 
pollution and they result from, you know, people that don't care. Or also if you hear scratching in the background, that's my cat chasing a bug, I believe. I think she's after a fly right now. Uh, so I apologize if you hear that background noise. But, um, but yeah, so it's one of those things where it's like we all want cleaner energy, but we disagree typically on how fast and in what ways to get there. So I kind of want to dive into like what that debate in Connecticut like really sparked and why I decided to do that episode. So basically one of the biggest things that happened at this debate in Connecticut was Joe Courtney, who he's not really all that bad of a dude. He's not my favorite candidate, but I think that he has decent intentions. I just don't think that he's realistic about it. Um, one of the biggest things that he mentioned was like decarbonization and applying these like negative impacts on like the oil industry and the gas industry and like trying to encourage green energy by attacking non-green energy. And I want to dive into why I think that across the board, that's a bad idea. And here's why. So when you have a windmill, for example, you still have to manufacture all the components for that windmill. No matter how green that windmill will end up being, you have to get that that steel or that alloy. I'm not actually sure exactly what they what kind of metal alloy they use for those, but either way, you have to manufacture that metal. You have to warp it. You have to melt it. You have to mold it. You have to rivet it. There's a whole process that involves pollution that they don't want to talk about. Same thing with your electric cars. You have to manufacture those batteries. You have to transport the components. All of these things aren't as simple as, oh, we have a windmill. Oh, we have an electric vehicle. There's so much more to it. For example, have you ever seen a Tesla being transported on a truck? That Tesla might be a green vehicle, but to get to the Tesla dealership, it's got to be moved on one of those big, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12, whatever car moving trucks. And those are, at least as far as I know, I haven't seen a single one that's an electric vehicle. So the problem with trying to do this like tax incentive, like where you attack polluters and you attack, you know, oil companies and things like that is everything that transports all of the components for the green energy is not green energy. All of the things that create the components for the green energy are not green energy. So if you start going after oil and making oil and gas more expensive, you're going to raise the price of everything right from the start before people even get a chance to buy it out of the warehouse or buy it offline or wherever you buy it. You're not even going to have a chance because it's already got to be transported and there's already going to be an increase in cost because they have to make up for that. And now you've applied this, this extra tax to things. You've, you've applied this negative incentive. So what I've heard a few politicians say, and I think is really smart, is instead of going for like an attack position, you go for a positive in the other direction. So start offering incentives like they have been for companies to find green solutions, to find ways to make things more efficient. Don't punish the companies that aren't doing it. Reward the companies that are doing it because then you're going to get the double benefit. You're still going to get the, the benefit of having that gas and oil and those companies that are involved with that and they're going to stay at like their baseline. But then companies that want to create better solutions are going to increase. And then some of those companies that are in the gas and oil are going to find more refined ways to reduce their carbon emissions, to do things that are beneficial, what the, what the politicians on the left actually want. But they're not going to do it because you're threatening them. They're going to do it because they want to save money. And it's going to end up actually positively impacting the consumer, us, and it's going to end up positively impacting the economy and inflation.
this decarbonization idea and punishing is not going to do any of that. It's just going to make things worse. And that's just a general statement. And that's one of the things that like Mike France kind of touched on in that debate. He, you guys should look him up if you get a chance. He's a really interesting, he's a little boring. Like he's not the most interesting to listen to or watch, but he's got some really good ideas and good points. He also uses the word challenge a lot, which might just be a nervous tick on his part. Um, so anyway, it's just one of those things where it's unrealistic to think that in a very short time we can just do a full 180 and like just completely go off of gas and oil and everybody's going to like like California with the whole um, electric all electric vehicles by like 20 I don't know what was it, 2030 or 2040. It's just not going to happen. And even if it does happen, we don't have the power grid in this country to support that number of electric vehicles. We're already seeing that shortage out in California where they're telling people don't run your ACs because we need to charge the cars. You need to make sure that you can actually make these things doable. You have to make sure that it's this, it's a sustainable system. I understand the, the, the want, the urge to make things better and to get rid of these negative impacts on our environment, 100%. But we need to do it in a sensible way, and we need to do it in a way that's not going to put us in the gutter in the economy. We can't fall so hard because we're trying to do the right thing. And I understand how that sounds, that I'm unsympathetic, but that's not the case. I'm just being realistic, and I don't want to pay $300 a week for groceries because we want to try and save the planet when most of the things we're doing don't even make sense and don't actually have that positive an impact but are having a huge negative impact on us and our everyday lives. And you need to stop letting people like take this moral high ground with it and say, well, you need to just suck it up and, you know, pay absorbent amounts of money, exorbitant, I'm sorry, but you need to just, you know, take this. I don't care if gas costs $5 a gallon. I heard people saying that if it's, you know, better for the environment, if it's better for, you know, not relying on gas for other countries, it's like, I mean, yeah, that would be great. But also a lot of people can't afford to travel with $5 a gallon gas. There are a lot of people in this country who rely on reasonably priced gas. I'm fortunate enough that I get my gas reimbursed. That's not the case for everybody. Some people commute to jobs that don't pay that well. You, you got to think about the, the repercussions of these actions. So that's kind of just my, my spiel on, on that little bit and about how the decarbonization taxes and things like that affect everything negatively from the top down. I also want to get into some of the problems with some of the specific green energies and then get into some of the, the really good green energy solutions. So that's going to be kind of my next little segment here. I'm going to do a quick pause here. You might hear a gap in the recording. So first off, I want to get into um, wind turbines, which I kind of mentioned before. I may have used the term windmill. People use them interchangeably, even though really a windmill was for grinding grain and it was a much more primitive thing. But the idea of wind turbines. They're a great idea and they work in certain applications, but the key word there is certain applications. So right off the bat, when you go to manufacture a wind, or a wind turbine, I'm sorry, like I mentioned before, there's a huge environmental impact in manufacturing the pieces. Before you even get that thing up, before it's done anything, before it's made any positive impact, you're already starting at a net negative impact because the, the cost to manufacture those both monetarily and environmentally is significant. Like, I mean, they're no joke. I mean, you, you probably see them from a distance and you think, oh, some people think they're ugly, some people think they're pretty, but I think we all know they're pretty freaking big. And they're large chunks of metal that, that takes a lot to make and it's high precision manufacturing and it's a lot of waste. 
So before you've even gotten a chance to do any positive, you've already done negative. And then once you get those, those twin turbines up, they tend to, if they're not in an area that is perfect, if you don't place them in just the right situation, they actually end up over their lifetime costing more to maintain than they actually generate in power. So you actually end up in this point where, yes, at a certain point, they may have a, a net neutral or a slight net positive as far as environmental, but they just don't really work all that well. And now I'm not talking about offshore wind turbines, which is like where you put them on like oil rigs or you put them out on the like out close to the water, but out into the ocean where you have complete open air and there's no obstacles, there's no real change. I mean, there's changes in wind and everything, but you have pretty constant, pretty significant, like constant wind. Those, if they're done right, can be hugely beneficial. I absolutely support those. But when you just throw them like up on a random hill somewhere surrounded by trees, they just don't really do all that well. And not to, not to get too far into this, because it's not really the point of this, but also they take out a crap ton of birds, <laughs> like a lot of birds. So if you want to like act like, like wind is this great, all solving, like wonderful thing, it's just not realistic. And it really is one of the worst solutions that's out there. I mean, it's great. Like if you had like a little windmill, or a little uh, wind turbine for your like personal property. Like if you're just generating enough power to like keep your lights on, charge your phones, run your computer, stuff like that, that can work. But these giant massive ones, more often than not, if you took away the government grants to build them, they wouldn't even be worth the time to put them up. People wouldn't even do it. The only reason you see them all over the place on hills is because there's tons of government grants behind them. You guys can look into this. I, I encourage you to look into it. And I also encourage you to look into the the cost uh, of maintenance over time versus the, the output of power and how much that power is worth. And, and look at the logistics of wind turbines the next time that you hear somebody touting how wonderful wind is. It's just, it's not truthful. And now solar is interesting and solar has come a long way and is going a long way. Um, there is another problem with solar too, though. Again, same problem with like the Teslas or with the electric vehicles. You need all of those circuits. You need all of those batteries. You need some way to store the power. You need ways to transport the power. You have to manufacture all of these intricate pieces. There, there's a lot more to these things that most of the politicians don't want to talk about. They'll, they'll tout the end result, which is, oh, look, we're, we're harnessing the power of the sun, which now that this thing is up, it doesn't cost anything to the environment. It's just glass panels and electricity. But all of those pieces have to be manufactured. All of those pieces have to be transported. Have you ever seen the size of a wind farm? If there's not a producer that's, you know, right up the road, all of those pieces have to be trucked in. Every single length of wire, every single panel, every single battery – all of that stuff has to come from somewhere, and all of the, the, the metals that are in there, in the case of the electric vehicles, the heavy metals, have to be mined. And that's a huge environmental impact, and you have to use mining equipment to get them out. So to act like this windmill just kind of, or this, uh, I'm sorry, solar panel, just popped into existence, and now I'm using it, and now I'm the, the virtuous, you know, uh, wonderful Mother Teresa of the sun, it's just not real. It, it's just a lie. It's 
nonsense. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't continue pursuing either one of these. Yes, we should continue pursuing wind power. Yes, we should continue pursuing solar power. But to act like what we have right now is this amazing solution that will revolutionize the world, it's just unrealistic. And to try and push directly to that now when we have other things that we know work, and I'll get into that in my next segment, which is kind of like the the fringe uh, alternate energies and the, the fringe green energies. Because right now, like solar and wind are the ones you hear everybody talk about all the time. But there are better ones that are like the fringes that I'm going to get into this next segment. And I think that if you give it a chance, you'll realize what I'm talking about. So just give me one second and I'll do the next segment. So two of like the, the fringe green energies, and one of these is coming up quick, and I actually was impressed with Joe Courtney, who is the Democrat in Connecticut. I believe it's Connecticut, too. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a right-leaning libertarian, so you wouldn't normally hear me praising Democrats. But one thing he did mention was nuclear and geothermal. And geothermal is a really interesting one because it's just harnessing the heat that's already in the earth, and it really doesn't hurt anything. It's just resonant heat. It's just there. Um, so geothermal is a really good one. But again, you do have to get like heat pumps. You do have to outfit. There is still a cost in that. But it's still one of the more interesting aspects. And the biggest one, if we're being very serious, and I know this is controversial, I know people aren't going to like this, and some people will really like this, but nuclear is really the number one. If you want to cut out gas and oil and coal. If you want to have green energy and you want to have a high efficiency, nuclear really is the only option we have right now. And you know it's not totally green. Yes, there is nuclear waste that you have to, you know, you have to properly handle and store and you need to be careful with it and you need to take into account for it. But realistically, if that nuclear waste is properly contained, it's much more efficient than anything else as far as cost to environment directly versus energy produced. And if you have the proper fail-safes and things, not like Chernobyl where it was run by the Russians and they didn't know what the hell they were doing and they didn't take the safety threats seriously and they were <laughs> trying to figure things out way before their time. And if you don't build it on a fault line like in um, Japan – the nuclear energy is is hugely efficient. It puts out vast amounts of energy. It doesn't take a lot to run. It's just, you know, you have to cool it. You need cold water. Um, and that's one of the other environmental impacts that people complain about with nuclear. Um, and yes, it is very true. When you have the reason nuclear power plants are normally built on waterways is so that you can take in water from the waterway, use it to cool, and then release it back into the water. So what you end up doing is you do end up raising those water temperatures in those surrounding areas, which can be negative on the environment, on the wildlife, on the flora and the fauna. So if we're going to make nuclear more efficient, we have to find more efficient ways to cool that water. So that would probably mean, in my mind, having multiple reservoirs, which I don't think I've heard anybody talk about in nuclear, at least not in the sense of nuclear plants that are in use, you need to have ways to hold that water so it can naturally cool before you release it back in, before you cycle it back through. But that's one of those things where, I mean, we can find ways to naturally cool water. Like we can find ways to make this work. 
and for how much energy you get out of nuclear, it, it's really the only green energy solution we have right now that really works, even though it does produce waste and it can be harmful to the environment. And maybe people out there don't agree with me. If so, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to have a conversation. Again, reach out to that that um, Gmail account. I'll, I'll mention it again at the end of the podcast. But nuclear is one of those ones where it can actually be done really well. And when you're talking about a large, like huge city, New York City, for example, I, I've mentioned before that I live in New York. You're not going to have enough solar panels and enough wind turbines realistically to power New York City, not for a long time. Maybe if we like someday make a, a breakthrough research and find some super high efficiency solar that's like out of this world that we can't even fathom right now, that would be doable. But right now, the cost to, to get enough of those things to actually make an impact on a grid that size, it's just not going to happen. Nuclear power, like they're shutting down Indian Point, which I think was the stupidest thing ever because Indian Point was hugely beneficial to the area. It's, I mean, yeah, nuclear is scary. Everybody's afraid of nuclear fallout and, and nuclear meltdowns, of course. But if you're careful with it, if you do the right thing, if you keep those fail-safes in place, and if we continue making progress instead of running away from it just because there's been a few disasters throughout the last, you know, I don't know, 70 years, it doesn't mean that, it, I mean, if you look at anything over a long period of time, there's going to be disasters. I mean, think about all the mining disasters of the past before we got better at, at safety measures and before we got better equipment to more successfully and safely mine. When they would just send you down with a burning rag on your head on top of your, you know, your helmet, it was literally like a, like a lantern with oil in it which is great because there's, you know, trapped explosive gas underground. They'd send you down with a canary, a toolbox with your lunch in it, a pickaxe, maybe a cart and a burning rag on your head and say, good luck. Yeah. There was a lot of mining casualties. That doesn't mean that mining was something that should be abandoned because it's too dangerous. It means that there, you need to find more efficient ways to do it that are safer, which we did. There are very few mining casualties per year now because we have proper equipment, because we're safer about it, because we use controlled measured explosives rather than ah, four sticks of dynamite should do it, chuck it in the hole and see what happens. <laughs> now we can do analysis of the, of the fault lines and of where there might be cave-ins or weak structures, and we have a little bit more knowledge. <laughs> so with nuclear, I, I think it's one of those things where instead of being afraid of it and saying we have to stop this completely, we need to go the opposite direction. Just like with, with wind and solar, like we've gone in the direction of, of progress on that, we need to find ways to make it more efficient. And going into this next little segment here, I don't even think I'm going to do a break for this one. I'm just going to keep going. Going into this next segment, oil and gas is the same way. If we can find ways to more cleanly process and burn and utilize oil and gas, we can't just completely disregard one of the greatest resources we've ever had. The one thing that made us able to accelerate our, our uh, evolution as a society, both in the U.S. particularly and in the world, it, it, we wouldn't be anywhere technologically if we didn't have those things. So to, to like try and say that we can just completely disregard it is silly and unrealistic. To say we can find ways to make more efficient like processes, like, like for example, a lot of coal plants now have scrubbers. 
which I'm not, you know, I'm not that kind of engineer. I do have a two year engineering degree, but I couldn't tell you the first thing about scrubbers. What I do know is that they're essentially a way to process the, the smoke and smog given off by uh, a coal plant, for example, and make it so that what's released isn't as detrimental as it would have been. We can find ways from, from all the way from when you, when you're getting the thing out of the ground to when you're refining it, whether that's a metal or an oil or a gas, to when you're actually burning it to get the the actual energy out of it, like in your car or in your house and your heating oil. We can find ways to do these where we can minimalize, <laughs> minimalize, minimize, well, I guess minimalize still works, but to minimize that environmental impact without disregarding a great and powerful and helpful resource. And in the U.S., we actually sit, especially with Alaska, on one of the largest natural gas and oil reserves in the world. We have huge amounts of natural gas and oil. It's one of our greatest advantages. So when I hear politicians say to kind of just ignore that and don't worry about it and we'll just go green energy, it's just, it's not going to happen. I mean, it will happen, but it's not going to happen in five years or 10 years or 20 years. It's going to happen in like 50 years. I mean, it's going to happen in smaller degrees before then, but you're not going to find ways to make all of this work on a massive scale. That's not how things work. It's just like when the car first came out, when they first created the, the Model Ts. When, I mean, they had earlier models, but that was the first big one. Not everybody had one because they didn't have enough supply for that demand. And they didn't have the efficiency. They weren't worth it. They were more of a novelty when they first came out. Cars were not very reliable when they were first created. It's going to be the same way with all of this green energy stuff. You're, you're going to have your early models. Just like remember TVs when you were growing up, when the TVs first started? Um, when I was a kid, it was the, the box TVs. And they had even worse ones before that, the bunny ears and everything else that were just black and white. But even when I was a kid, in, in just a couple of decades, we've gone from the box TVs to giant flat screen curve 3D, 4K, HD. It's going to be the same way with green energy, but you have to let that process carry out. And as soon as the first flat screen came out, everybody didn't go and throw their box TVs into a burn pit in the backyard because they knew they weren't going to be able to afford it because it was way too expensive. Now, the TVs that would have cost, you know, 700 dollars are now $150. And now they have the brand new LED curved 4K ones that are like $3,000. And in 10 years, they'll probably have something even more impressive and cooler. And those will be like dirt cheap. And the ones that we're using now that are the $150 flat screens, those will just be sold at yard sales for 10 bucks. It's going to be the same way with everything. That's just the way things are. So we need to let that process of development happen and we need to encourage it. And there's nothing wrong with encouraging and rewarding companies for innovation. That's wonderful and great. But when you do that, but at the same time you punish and stifle the other side of your economy, you're only hurting yourselves and our politicians. They don't really care because they're, they're just want, they want the votes. They want the votes. They want you to turn out and vote for them, and they really don't care about whether or not voting for them is the best thing for you. Most of them. There are a few exceptions. But we really need to realize that most of them are not looking out for us, and most of them don't actually believe what they're saying. 
if these people really cared about the environment, they would be addressing the things that I've talked about. They'd be talking about how when you raise the price of gas and oil, when you make it more expensive to transport goods, even the technologies you're trying to encourage then have to suffer because all that shit has to get moved. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of my, my whole spiel on green energy. And, you know, there's more to be said, obviously, and I'll probably dive into things. There's biochemical energy. There's all different, like, you know, uh, there's nuclear fusion as, or nuclear, yeah, nuclear fusion as opposed to nuclear fission, which is fascinating and interesting. There's thorium reactors. There's all sorts of stuff that eventually maybe I'll do episodes on and get into like more specifics of green energy and nuclear but I just kind of wanted to address this because, like I said, I saw that debate in Connecticut and it really sparked my interest. And it was just really interesting to see the two approaches to it and how one of them was like, oh, we're going to institute in our entire area this massive switch to electric vehicles. And the other guy was like, wait, does Connecticut really have the demand for electric vehicles? Do we really have the, the means to charge all those buses and taxis and everything? And it was a valid point because I don't know if you've ever been to Connecticut, but other than like Hartford, it's pretty sparse. Like I, I don't see how you would be able to justify a giant massive switch immediately to electric vehicles and throwing out all of the things you already have. It just doesn't seem feasible and it doesn't seem that beneficial. Um, so yes, yeah, so shout out to Mike France, the congressional candidate in Connecticut. If anybody's listening from Connecticut, I highly encourage you to check him out. I'm not telling you to vote for him because that's your decision to make. But um, I definitely would encourage just doing some research on him. He had some interesting things to say. Um, and so didn't Joe Courtney, honestly, even though I wouldn't vote for him because I don't believe that his ideas work. I think that he has good intention at least. So anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate everybody that tunes in every time. If you're a new viewer, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to some of my past episodes. Um, the one on guns, I'm particularly proud of. That one's gotten really good reception. I've gotten a lot of great feedback on that. Um, the Three Letters and Lie was a really good episode, too. That's about, like, the FBI and the CIA. But um, even if you just tuned in for this one episode and you didn't like what you hear and you're never tuning in again, I appreciate you listening to the end. Um, this has been Political Division Re-Envisioned with Nick Liberty. If you guys want to reach out to the podcast and have some input or interaction, please go to politicaldivisionreenvisioned at gmail.com. Again, that's politicaldivisionreenvisioned at gmail.com. Same title as the podcast, no spaces, at gmail.com. Uh, and I hope to hear from some of you guys soon, and I appreciate you tuning in and listening. Have a good one, everybody.